DNet Stumps podcast, Zimbabwe's only weekly cricket show with expert analysis by Dean Duplessis. Always a great pleasure to be with you on the Dean at Stumps podcast. And uh, if you're listening for the very first time and if you'd like to subscribe, well, it's pretty simple. You go to your preferred podcast app, whichever one that is. You search for Dean at Stumps, you subscribe, and you get to listen to with interviews with some of the finest people and players who have played the game. The likes of former South African captain Sean Pollock, former England captain Michael Vaughan, Michael Holding, Andy Flower, and if it's a Zimbabwean flavor you're after, well, that's pretty easy as well because we have the likes of former opening batsman Tina Moyo, who's now a commentator, there's Pommy Mbangwa, a great deal of wonderful players and people who you can get to listen to. My name is Dean Duplessis, and as always, it is a great pleasure to have you along and to be with you wherever you may be listening to this podcast, some really good lockdown material that we've had for you over the last, oh gosh, six weeks or so, maybe not quite as long as that, say three to four weeks. Right now, his name is Hilton Dion Ackerman. Most of us who have listened to him as a commentator and indeed who followed his career as a very accomplished middle order batsman know him as H.D. Ackerman. His father, Hilton, himself was a wonderful sportsman, a true gentleman, one of those dynamic people who was able to pretty much succeed at everything he did. And H.D. Uh, Ackerman now finds himself in Perth, Western Australia, where he recently became the batting coach of Afghanistan. So uh, I was able to catch up with H.D., and uh, he was telling me that initially the adjustment had been a little bit difficult given the fact that he'd been in South Africa for all of his life. Yeah, Dean, I've been here now in May. It will be, I would have been here for four years. Um, oh, I'll be honest with you, it hasn't been, it hasn't been easy. Um, you know, when you leave a country that you've spent 40 years in, you know, the, the networks that you've created, the friendships that you've made, uh, your family are, are there. Um, it's not easy, but you know, Perth's a lovely place. It's it's very similar in a way to 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 Cape Town, where where I was where I was born and 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 brought up. So, you know, from from that point of view, it's it's great. But you know, I still to this day find it difficult because South Africa will always be my home, and uh, and I miss and I miss the the people and the country. Mm, absolutely. Cape Town, uh, an incredibly beautiful part of the world. But as you say, there are similarities in terms of climate, uh, very Mediterranean. So I guess, you know, it's not that big a, uh, of an adjustment for you. Um, so it seems to me, uh, HD, that you've landed a, a rather nice job in the sense that you are going to be the batting coach of Afghanistan. That must be something that you're looking forward to. I am, Dean. Um, when I say it's been a long time coming, I'm, I'm not saying it's been a long time. <laughs> it's taken a long time for someone to employ me in that type of role. It's just that when I left South Africa, you know, I was very comfortable and, and loved the jobs that I was occupying there. Uh, one with Supersport, you know, sort of starting out a commentary career. Um, and all, the other one was being employed by Cricket South Africa as, as a batting coach at their high performance center. When I moved to Australia, I sort of had to surrender those positions. Uh, 
And just to give you a bit of history, I took up a post here as a school, as sort of the sort of the head of cricket at a, at a school here in Perth, a, a very uh, elite private school where uh, people that will remember names like Tom Moody, who played for Australia, Brendan Julian, who played for Australia, Heath Ledger, the Oscar winner who played the played the Joker, the late Heath Ledger, they went to that uh, that school. So a beautiful school, but something that I wasn't accustomed to. But I needed to have a full-time job just so that I could settle in, in Australia. Um, and it took me, after about three years, I just thought, you know, enough's enough now. I really need to start doing what I loved and what I set out to do. And that was to, you know, pursue commentary and to pursue a coaching a, a career. And um, so I, I, I quit I quit the school um, and just started freelance commentary. And, and luckily enough, you know, there was a number of um, – Broadcasters, one in particular who who used me quite a lot um, at under nineteen World Cups, at Women's World Cups, at uh, qualifier World Cup qualifiers. Um, so the work was was starting to come, you know. And then I started. Then I got offered the, the, a job at the PSL, which which was fantastic until it was cut short by this global crisis. Um, and then I actually saw the position of Afghanistan betting coach available, and I, I made the call to Lance Klusner, uh, who I know was the head coach. Um, and he just said that he didn't know that I was, I would be interested in something like that. And would I be interested? And I said, yes. Um, and things progressed from there. And eventually the, the position was offered to me and I've, I've taken it. And what is so sad is I've, I've really just spent two weeks with them really, um, in total. I mean, I started work with them on the 1st of March, um, in India where we played against Ireland in a tri series. And um, we won that series. And that was really just me getting to know players, getting to know the coaching staff, um, what my role was going to be, what they expected from me. Um, so it's just so sad for, for everyone, really. I mean, for the, for the world that this global crisis has hit us. But, um, you know, I'm just obviously sad that I haven't been able to, to continue in, in that role and hopefully – Things will lift soon and we can continue doing what we love. Oh, I'm sure it will. It, it may take a bit of time and, and it may be a different type of normal, HD. Uh, but I, I think things will once again have some form of, um, I, I don't know if we can use the word normality, but you know, getting back to doing what we love so much. Now, it's wonderful. So you and Lance Klusner will, I'm assuming he's still the head coach, is he? Yes, Lance is the head coach. Wow, so that's a, a real, a very good, strong South African contingency uh, working together. Uh, and the nice thing is that I think you have very similar ideas as to what you would want from a team. But just give us, uh, I mean, admittedly, you've only just been with the team, but I would imagine that you've been made to understand that the height of expectancy is pretty big because although Afghanistan haven't really made strides in the test arena, and that's mainly due to the limited amount of cricket that they played, but they, they, like the majority of the subcontinent, they take their cricket very seriously in these parts of the world, don't they? They certainly do, and you, you make such a good point there, Dean, around their opportunities being limited. You know, I think Afghanistan have been their own worst enemy, and if I say that, in that what I mean is that the success and, and the, the rise of Afghanistan cricket has been so uh, quick that they've sort of, um, the future tourist program sort of um, has already been taken care of, you know, so I, I think of the likes of Scotland and the Netherlands and Ireland, and they've all done exceptionally well. 
don't get me wrong, they've all done well, but Afghanistan have sort of, you know, come into the fray and they've, their acceleration has been unbelievable. Um, I mean, you know, they ranked, I think, seventh in the world at the moment in T20 cricket. They would have been ranked sixth if they had won the series against Ireland 3-0, but they won 2-1. Um, yes, they, they, they've played a couple of test matches, but the Future Tours program is so chock-a-block and it had been organized so in advance that Afghanistan really find it difficult to put fixtures together. So, you know, if they're going to progress, if they want to become a force in world cricket, um, they need to play more and they need to play against big opposition more. Um, yes, they play against Ireland and they play against um, uh, Scotland and, and, and all those other teams. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, that the growth of the game is fantastic. But if Afghanistan want to become better, just like if Scotland or Ireland or anyone wants to become better, you need to start playing against the South Africans, the West Indies, the Australias, the Englands, the Indias. You know, you need to play those fixtures more. Um, so, yeah, that, that, that's what I mean by, by saying they're their own worst enemy. But certainly their expectations are very, very high. I mean, they've got some world-class players that are seen around the world in all these franchise leagues. You think of Mohammed Nabi, you think of Rashid Khan, um, Mujib, Case Ahmed, who plays, he's a leg who plays in the Big Bash. So there's, there's certainly household names. But as far as the team's concerned, they're very aware that they've got lots of work to do. But they're not afraid of anyone. They believe they can beat anyone, which is a great asset to have. It certainly is. And I guess, does your perception of the smaller teams change from being a player where maybe perhaps if this had been, uh, say, 20 years ago in Afghanistan were making strides? Or, for example, maybe if you had played against a Zimbabwe or a Bangladesh in the 1990s where there were certain players who would have said, oh, do we really have to play you know, these weaker teams? What can we possibly gain from, from playing them? Because we know we're going to beat them. Now I would imagine the frustration levels or, or the, the perceptions change a little bit because no longer are you thinking, oh man, I want to play against Shane Warne and, and Glenn McGrath versus you know, a, I don't know, Heath Streak or a Paul Strang. So, so that whole perception changes because now you feel the frustrations of these lesser nations um, wanting to play against the bigger opposition to try and improve. Yeah, look, I mean, I think, you know, the ICC are certainly, uh, they're certainly a, a group that are trying to, to get some of these lesser nations to play more. You know, obviously with, you've got the World Test Championship now. Um, you've got two World, uh, T, World Cup T20s, one in Australia, which is hopefully going to take place in October, November. You've got another one next year, which is in, which is in India. So there's going to be a lot of qualifiers that take place and those will be between the lesser nations. And also with, with these, these franchise T20 leagues coming up, it's just that the calendar is so jam packed. So yeah, I do understand that it must be very, very difficult. But with Afghanistan now being a test playing nation, you know, these other nations will have to play against them in order to get points and that for world test championships and that going forward once this current one is, is done. That's what I would presume. Um, Yes, there isn't a history where you're going to have an Ashes type thing or, you know, a Border Gavaska trophy. Those, that, that isn't there yet. Um, but when I, again, in saying that, I mean, will that ever be around again with the advent of T20? You know, I think the Ashes is here to stay, certainly, but some of these other, um, series that have got the, these wonderful names attached to them, I, I don't think that, that they contain the same history as, 
as the Ashes. I think we're going to probably start moving more towards three test matches being the most that is going to be played down the line, you know, other than something like the Ashes. So I think there will be more cricket for some of these, these lesser nations, but it, and when I say lesser nations, you understand what I'm saying, Dean. I'm not calling them a lesser nation, uh, just from a cricketing perspective. Um, I think that uh, they will play more cricket, but it will still be very, very trying. So what would you, uh, I mean, obviously, all things considered, if we get back to some form of, of normality, and if you and I had a bit of a chat, be it uh, while having a cold beverage or another podcast in a year's time, what would you have liked to have achieved with as your role as batting coach alongside Lance Klusner and the rest of the setup of Afghanistan. Oh well, we we can all have that. We can all have that dream that you know Afghanistan um, comes back and the world comes together at the MCG and it's the first sporting event after the global crisis and Afghanistan beat the host nation Australia to provide the ultimate fairy tale for the world you know that yeah. that for me would 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 be great and and I don't think that I would be um a cricketing person or a sporting person if I didn't have that goal in mind um but I think from a from a coaching staff point of view what do we want to Chief, we just want to make sure that we leave Afghanistan cricket in a better place than what it was when we arrived, in that players have got better, uh, players have got a hunger to play the game, they love the game, um, we've got more people, not that they need any more, they've got so many followers back home already, but more people are loving the game and more young people are playing the game because of the way the national side not only conducts itself off the field, but on the field. So, yeah, you know, I just think we want to make sure that we leave Afghanistan cricket in a better place than, than what we found it. And I think that's probably what every coach wants to, wants to do. Results? Yes, we definitely want to win lots of matches and we want to have a successful Asia Cup if that goes ahead. We want to have a successful World Cup if that, if that goes ahead, but to Afghanistan cricket in a, in a, in a great place. Yeah, that I think makes a great deal of sense. Now, actually, let's talk a bit about your career. I have to tell you, I was probably one of your biggest fans in the 1990s when I was finishing off my schooling in, in Worcester. You know, and it was a wonderful... So I had one. I, <laughs> I'm sure you had many more, sir. But um, um, it, it was a wonderful era because we're just as I was about to finish up in South Africa and come back to Zimbabwe permanently, I, I did it with a bit of a lump in my throat and a sore spot in my heart because I thought, you know what, I'm going to miss out... On, on the likes of, of Jacques Callas developing, on Herschel Gibbs. Uh, but fortunately, I was able to keep track because then satellite television started to, to move in in a big way. But Herschel Gibbs, Jacques Callas, yourself, and uh, if I may bring your wonderful late father into this, I remember him saying in an interview very clearly on a radio station that one day Herschel Gibbs, Jacques Callas, and H.D. Ackerman at some point will be playing together in the same team. And, of course, that did happen. I mean, we definitely all played in the same in the same provincial side for long periods of time. Um, Herschel and Jacques went on to have incredible international careers. Um, I wasn't as fortunate, but, uh, you know, the, the nice thing is I, I did manage to get a, a Protea Blazer, which is something that I, that I do cherish. Um, but but yeah, you know, it's it, we were we were very very lucky um, as young players in that we were involved in a in a system that just functioned very well. Um, you know, my late father at that time was in charge when we were sort of coming through. He was in charge of the what they called the Colts in those days, which was a, an under twenty three team, which was really just a bunch of nuts. 
19 and 20 year olds um, and we were led by Paddy Upton of all people oh, yes. um, who's had a successful coaching career and uh, he's been a strength and conditioning coach but he, he led us as an, as an elder guy in the side um, and then we sort of progressed from there uh, Jacques and I, I think we made our debuts together actually I mean Herschel made his debut as a, I think he was still in nappies when he made his <laughs> debut um, but Jacques and I made our debut um, and Duncan Fletcher was the coach. And, and I say we were privileged because of the players that, that surrounded us, the likes of Gary Kirsten, the likes of Brian McMillan, the likes of Mary Pringle, Dave Randall, Richie Ryle was the wicketkeeper when we first started. Um, you, you know, we were just – Desmond Haynes came in. Uh, he was the first overseas professional. Uh, well, first was Carlisle Best for just a season and then Desmond Haynes came – and I think that um, we, they, those players, just by being around us, taught us so much that we were we were spoilt as far as our cricketing upbringing uh, was concerned. Um, and having someone like Duncan Fletcher as the coach uh, was was amazing. I mean, you know, England speak fondly about him as a coach. Well. We had him before England, so we were really, really lucky. But of course, uh, let's not forget, HD, that Alan Lamb also had a season, didn't he, with, with uh, Western Province, 92, going into 93. Uh, but before your time, yeah, so, you, you would have interacted. Yeah, just before me. Yeah. Just before me. So, so that was very special. And, uh, and then, of course, you leading up to making your test debut, correct me if I'm wrong, that was against Pakistan in 1998. You would have come in for the Port Elizabeth test match. Is that, is that correct? No, uh, you got all the dates right. My first test match was actually in Durban. Right, um, that's correct. The second yes, test. Indeed. The first test was played at the Wanderers. The Wanderers, yes. Um, it was the famous test match where Boucher and Simcox put on that world record <laughs> partnership. Uh, then we went to we went to Durban and I was brought into the side for for that Test match and yes it was against Pakistan uh, we lost that Test match and then went to Port Elizabeth which happened to be Farni de Villiers's final yes. Test match and he bowled us to victory there for us to square that series because uh, the first one was uh, was a draw there was a lot of inclement weather around at the Wanderers but I didn't I wasn't in, involved in that team at the Wanderers that's right but um, certainly I, I remember the Durban one very distinctly now Mushtaq Ahmed bowled very nicely um, and it was a test match yeah, that yes. Um, sort of, there was a bit of momentum that could have swung one way and then the other, but then uh, Pakistan got themselves into a, a decent lead. I remember Hansi Cronier having to bowl a bit of offspin because of uh, a slight. Did he have a, a, a small operation, a leg operation, or he was recovering from a calf injury? And Hansi, as opposed to those more than useful medium paces, had to then bowl a bit of offspin. Uh, to try and make up the numbers. Yeah, look, I just remember that test match being, I mean, it was, when I say a bit of a blur, I mean, when it's your first test match, the excitement is just through the roof, you know. I mean, I was now playing with people that I'd worshipped, and now they were sort of teammates, you know, guys like Hansi, uh, Alan Donald, Farney de Villiers, uh, Sean Pollock. You know, these guys were just people that you sort of looked up to now that they were, now they were your teammates. And um, it was a test, test match where Azam Mahmood got 100, the Pakistan all-rounder. Um, it was a test match that ebbed and flowed. Shahab Akhtar bowled very, very quick. That was my first sort of sighting of, of him. Um, and Mushtag Ahmed bowled us out. Uh, and the thing, why he became so difficult to play against was in particular the second innings. Is In Durban, 
when the ball gets dirty and you don't sort of make excuses around it. But, you know, when you're trying to pick a wrist and a, there's, there's, a, there's many players who could pick it out the hand. There's, there's others that watch it in the air. Then there's others that read it off the pitch. Well, most of us were sort of relying on, on to try and pick it in the air to see which way the seam was spinning. But the ball gets very, very dirty. And so you couldn't really see the seam. And, um, Mushtaq was our undoing in that, um, in that test match in, in Durban. And it's funny how, you know, spin has success in Durban. You know, a lot of people think, oh, Durban, you know, seems all over the place. We think of the fast bowlers that have appeared there with Malcolm Marshall, Sean Pollock, and Lance Cleason over the years. But spinners like bowling in Durban because the ball, because the ball used to bounce. Um, and so it really was no surprise that Mushtag did well. But we had their number in PE when, uh, when Farney swung at round corners. I remember him taking six for 18 or something bizarre um, uh, and getting amongst the wickets very early. And as you say, him, him calling it time. That was a good test match as well, HD, because you had Hansi Cronier, who was a little out of form because South Africa had just got back from, from Australia. He was just beginning to find his feet, uh, scored an invaluable half century in the first innings. Waka Yunus bowled beautifully in South Africa's second innings. But by then, because of Farney bowling and taking six for 18, Pakistan were never really going to be in with a chance. Azam Mahmood, I remember, had to open the batting because of injuries that occurred, I think, to Amir Sahel. So, uh, very fond memories. But, I mean, it, it must have been... Did you, were you under any form of pressure because your, your late father was himself an incredibly good batsman? Um, and, and did you ever feel that you kind of had to take over from where he left off? So a, a slightly similar scenario to the Pollocks, you know, where Sean was able to continue where his dad, Peter, left off, and to a certain extent his uncle, Graham. And did, did you ever feel under that immense pressure, or did you just go out there and enjoy yourself to the best of your ability? Um, I, I think, you know, early parts of my, look, the one thing is for sure is that my father never shoved cricket down my throat. I grew to love the game at my own pace. And that's why I still love the game to this day. Um, you know, the fact that I went on and had a career with it made him immensely proud, but he, he certainly was never one to sit down and say, you know, you've got to play cricket and come on, let me throw you a thousand balls. And he let me do it at my own pace, which I'm very, very grateful of. Um, but I did feel pressure. There, there's no doubt. You know, the, the thing is, is that when you got selected for a side and your father was the coach, you used to think, oh, well, I'm in the team because of he's the coach. And you used to think, I wonder what everyone else is thinking. So you used to, I used to think those things. Um, and it's amazing. I, I became a much better player when I went to, to England at the age of 30. And I say I became a better player because Within that team in England, I honestly believed that I was a good, the best player in that, in that team, that ba best batsman. Whereas when I was at Western Province, I was surrounded by greatness. And so I probably never sort of backed myself as, as much as I, I, I should have. I, I matured late as a cricket player. And I think I remember having an argument with my father once because I overheard him say to my mom when I got picked for South Africa, I overheard him saying that I wasn't ready. And we had an almighty row because I told him that I was playing the best cricket of my life. And Anyway, he didn't get in, involved in the row. It was very one-sided. It was just me screaming. But he was right in the end in that I was too immature as a cricketer at 24 to be playing uh, for South Africa. I mean... What I knew a few years later, I would love to have had another shot at the title. But, you know, as life pans out, you don't. But so to answer your question, yes, you know, I, I did feel I did feel pressure, but it certainly didn't come from him. It was created by my own demons. 
I could never imagine your late father putting anybody under any pressure. What I could imagine though, <laughs> is, is him encouraging and encouraging and encouraging. Uh, you know, that's the sort of man. I never got to meet him, sadly, but just by listening to that very calming, beautiful way that he had of speaking and, and the respect that he's had when he spoke about people or to people on television tells me that your father was an incredible man, H.D. Yeah, Dean, you know, the, the, I mean, I was, again, very lucky. I think he was a student of the game. I hear people say that to me, they say to me, oh, he's one of the most knowledgeable pe people they've ever met. Um, I am saddened now when I look back and I think for the amount that he gave to cricket and the amount that he gave to South African cricket, I'll be honest, I don't quite think he was treated as well as he should have been. Um, yes, he occupied virtually every single position in South African cricket bar, barring the head coach. And uh, maybe I'm looking at it at a financial point of view. Maybe I'm saying that a guy that has given that amount of, of time and energy to South African cricket, the man who went into the townships when South Africa came out of isolation, you know, maybe I, I look at the, the life he, he sort of led and think hey, he should have been rewarded a little bit more. But, but that's just me maybe being a son. Um, but I know I've never met anyone in Australia. They talk about Mike, Huss, Mike Hussey. I've never met anyone that loves cricket more, that loved cricket more than my late father. I mean, he loved cricket, then my mother came second. And she was a distant second too. And, and he adored her. So, um, cricket really was his absolute passion. That sounds a little bit like the host of Dean at Stump's podcast, to be honest with you. Very, very similar. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was very unfortunate. So you made your debut against Pakistan. You looked very good. Unfortunately, the runs, you know, weren't quite the way, the, the sort of the desired outcome. You didn't quite score the runs that you would have liked to have. And then a tricky tour, the, the tour of Sri Lanka in 2000, where um, you were then opening the batting. Well, certainly Neil McKenzie opened the batting, but you were also, well, that is difficult, isn't it, touring Sri Lanka? That, that's very hard work. Yeah, you're mixing me with someone here, Dean. So in 1998, I played Pakistan, and we um, I had a decent series against them. I just played the, the two test matches. Immediately after that, um, Sri Lanka came to South Africa, and we played two test matches. Oh, yes. We won 2-0, but I didn't get any runs. Murulitharan bowled, bowled me out. Um, again, never seen anyone spin the ball as much as that. Um, I'm pleased to say that I'm a number of his 800 wickets because out of the four, four um, innings that I played against him, he dismissed me three times. So, yeah, that was a struggle, and I was dropped after that series, and the South African squad went to England to play um, a test series in England. So I was left out of that squad um, that, went, that went to the UK. I recall that. In 2000, yeah, in 2000, I think it's 2000 because... Um, we toured Zimbabwe and I was chosen as backup for, I think Gary Kirsten hurt his neck and there was a possibility I was going to play the first test in Harare, but he, he ended up playing. I think he got a double hundred. Did, I think Andy Flower might have got a double hundred as well. It is an incredible test match. Uh, Gary got a double hundred on the first day. Very unlike, but uh, played beautifully and was 201 not out at stumps. So, so no, I was there as cover for him, um, but he played. And then Herschel did some damage to a hamstring. And we, so they took me to Bulawayo as then cover for Herschel. 
but Herschel played, so I didn't play. So no, I didn't, I didn't get another opportunity to play. But um, you know, the South African side from 1998, when when I made my debut, if I look at it from there to what 2015, it just went from strength to strength to strength to strength. I think the South African cricket side just got better and better and better, and we really did start producing some world class legendary players that will go down in the history books of some of the greatest of all time. And that led to us becoming the number one side uh, in the world. And I'm, I can only look at that and say I'm so grateful and fortunate to have played with a lot of those guys. And a lot of those guys have become good friends of mine. Um, and, yeah, there's a there's a whole another life. I mean, I've, I've managed to – I was sitting in a seat when Jacques Callis got his first double hundred. I was sitting next to Robin Jackman in the commentary box. So there's a lot of – there's a lot of other um, unbelievable moments in my career that I can remember fondly. You know, they're not. I don't just think, "Oh, you played four Test matches." Well, that's the end of it. There were some. There were some wonderful, wonderful times. Oh, absolutely, and and you, you led me up very nicely to to the final question: Is uh, what would your your most memorable matches be as a commentator? And, and you mentioned the the the, Gary, the Jacques Callas double hundred which was a long time coming. And finally, it did happen against India. Sachin Tendulkar, I know, also scored a very special 100 in that particular series. But uh, what were some of those that you will always remember when you you know, become really old and decrepit and think, goodness me, I remember 40 years ago when I was in the commentary box, these are the test matches that I will never, ever forget. Yeah, I mean, I think everyone will remember 21 for nine at Newlands, Australia. Um, you know, they ended up getting, I think, 40-something. Uh, they put on a few for the last week. That was an incredible test match because, you know, South Africa were gone and they were done. They were going to get beaten. Michael Clark got an exceptional 100. He weathered an unbelievable storm from Mornay Morkel that showed the quality of batsman that Michael Clark was. Um, and then we got them into all sorts of trouble. And then they had to chase a tricky target. And... Um, Umler and Smith were just out of this world and they ended up winning the test match easily. So that's a test match I'll remember. Then Supersport sent us to Australia to commentate on a South Africa-Australia test series here uh, where I am now. And um, I'll ne it was here in Perth where we, we beat Australia to win, the, to win that, that test series. And I watched the videos get 100 here. Umler get 100. Smith, they were sensational. Dale Stain running in, bowling quickly. And to think that the first test in Brisbane, if it hadn't rained, South Africa were on the rocks. In Adelaide, I watched Faf Duplessis do the unthinkable, which was actually block the ball for a day, where everyone, including me, was saying, you can't, you can't do this for a day. You need to transfer pressure. You need to hit a ball for four or get a two or one. But they proved everyone wrong. They went out there. I mean, it was the most incredible batting display. And as boring as people would look, if they look at that scorecard, would say that game was, it was riveting. I mean, the Adelaide Oval buzzed all day while a young man blocked the cricket ball <laughs> and the Australians threw everything at him. So that whole series was just amazing for me. Um, but more than any other game, Dean, I think I've just been privileged to be in a commentary box and see some great players and to work alongside some legends of the game. Yes, there's been some great broadcasters who've taught me so much, the Robin Jackmans of the world, the Alan Wilkins of the world, the Harsha Boglers of the world, but to, to, to sit alongside Sonil Gavaskar and not know what to call him, 
because yes, everyone's yes. calling him Sonny, yeah. and I'm thinking my father will give me a hiding <laughs> if I call him Sonny, because he is. This is Mister Gav- <laughs> This is Mister Gavaskar to you, um, you know. And to sit and have breakfast at the same table as Ian Chappell. I mean, it's unthinkable as a young boy. These were just names on cards that you bought at the local shop, which you used to do swapsies with at school and stuff. Yeah. These were just these people you were never ever going to lay eyes on. Never mind sit and have bacon and eggs with, you know. And um, yeah, I mean, I can go on and on. The, the friends that I've made in the commentary box as as not only in the commentary box. I mean, as you will know, the, the cameramen, the the, the 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 engineers, the audio people, the the production managers. You know, they're just. Everyone, it, it has been another amazing journey to be involved um, in television. H.D. Ackerman, it has been a real pleasure talking to you and uh, wishing you nothing but the very best as your role as Afghanistan batting coach. I can actually one day foresee you coaching at Test Side. The, the, your knowledge, your love that I hear when you commentate tells me uh, that uh, one day when you're ready and when you're up for it that you would grasp the opportunity of coaching a Test team and coaching, with, uh, coaching it with a great deal of success. Wishing you nothing but the very best for the future. Dean, thank you very much, and I look forward to working alongside you one day. <laughs> That'll be good. You're listening to Dean at Stumps, hosted by Dean Duplessis. Oh, what a great man. H.D. Ackerman bringing us to the end of this edition of the Dean at Stumps podcast. Thank you very much indeed for listening. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did, and we'll be back again in the uh, very, very near future with another great listen for you. But until then, stay safe and goodbye. You've been listening to Dean at Stumps, Zimbabwe's only weekly cricket podcast. 